If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Can we follow in the footsteps of our prehistoric and medieval forebears? Well, archaeologist Dr Jim Leary of the University of York would like us to try because he's been researching the importance of mobility and travel in the period. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, called him to find out more. Dr Jim Leary is lecturer in field archaeology at the University of York. And Jim, you've written an article in the journal Antiquity with Professor Martin Bell, which is called Pathways to the Past, A Positive Approach to Routeways and Mobility. Uh, And I saw that on Twitter and uh, had a look at it. And then uh, we were chatting uh, on social media and you shared with me an unpublished manuscript that you've written and which incidentally is looking for a publisher, uh, provisionally entitled Rome, which talks about the archaeology of travel and movement more generally. So that's the the conversation uh, that I wanted to chat about today. So Jim, thank you very much for joining us. I hope you're well. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, really delighted to be talking about Rome. 
Okay, good. So um, let's start off with just uh, the, the basic premise. So um, we tend to focus, when we're thinking about archaeology, we tend to focus on archaeological sites, graves, or static places. Uh, but that means that we overlook one of the basic aspects of life, which is mobility. And in that recent article that I mentioned in the introduction, uh, I'm just going to do a little quote. You said, concentrating on sites removes the physical evidence of bodily movement from the discourse and imposes a stillness on the past. So what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that when we look at archaeology, when we talk about archaeology, in fact, when we talk about the past more generally, we see it as a series of, of static images. You know, there's a, there's a headline that often crops up when archaeology is found in the newspapers, and that's uh, frozen in time. And we, we talk about that quite often, this, this idea that archaeology is this, this static image, this, this, this point that's frozen in time. And what that does is remove a really key aspect of what it is to be human. And of course, that key aspect is mobility, it's moving. <clears throat> And when we move, when we remove mobility from our discussion, we remove some of the things that make us, that, that, that make us human, that make, make life enliven the past. And, you know, on one, in one sense, I think it's perfectly understandable. We, we, we talk about monuments and place a lot in archaeology. Um, and place is sort of a very tangible thing. You can see it, you can go to it, you can go inside monuments, you can um, draw boundaries around them. But what, they, what it does by doing that is, is remove this, this, uh, this, the, the movement, the liveliness of the past. In a sense, it's a form of um, a, a disenchantment. I think we rob the past of, of uh, some of the actual life. So what I want to do is put back that liveliness. I want to recreate that sort of buzz on the, uh, along the roads and, and, and the um, paths of the past. You know, that sort of hubbub, the shouts and the, 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 the chatting, the gossip and all of these things. These all happened along paths. You know, life, is, life happens on the move. It doesn't happen in place. Or to put it another way, place is actually a, a tangle of, of different sorts of movements. So what I'm trying to do, what I was trying to do with the book is, is put that richness back into the past. And uh, you definitely do. In the manuscript you sent me, you uh, you sort of you bring that to life, and you bring the sort of, some of the poetry, I suppose, of, of the motion of, of of life and, the, and moving around into it. So um, so if 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 uh, if there is a publisher out there looking for uh, a good topic like that, then uh, then it's worth a look. But but is this. Is this a new field of study then? Because, uh, you know, I, I tend to think that, yeah, you know, we do focus on monuments and you read archaeological textbooks and stuff. And, the, you know, they do rightly, as you say, focus on the on the things that don't move around so much. So is this something that uh, the archaeologists have been picking up on recently and trying to trying to forge a new field of study? Well, I think, I mean, mobility has always come into archaeology. We've always talked about mobility. And of course, we talk about mobility an awful lot now in archaeology because we have these amazing new techniques such as um, ancient DNA study or isotope analysis. I mean, isotopes are just wonderful because you can, um, uh, to some degree, you can determine where somebody, the geological area, somebody grew up and... Um, uh, the, 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 and you can compare that to where they ended up. So you can sort of see um, where people came from and went to. But what you're actually looking at there are places. 
what place they came up, they grew up, and what place they ended up. And we do the same with objects. You know, you can look at the people talk about the movement of objects, but they're actually talking about the place that it was made or came from originally and the place it ended up. The journey in between is the bit that we very rarely talk about in archaeology. So we are talking about mobility, but in a very different way to the way that I would like it to be conceived. Okay, so it's the it's the human experience of moving that you're you're trying to get to, which seems like a a very valuable place to try and understand. Um, so, just thinking about this conversation, obviously, there's there's an awful lot we could talk about here. So, uh, I'd, I'd like to try and structure the conversation get, to move from prehistory through to the Middle Ages, and we probably won't go uh, far beyond that in terms of chronology. Um, so, let's try and start at the beginning, or or, or a sort of beginning, um, uh, when uh, when we look at um, uh, a, a, a period in question. So, archaeology just talk of a boundary between periods, between the Mesolithic and the Neolithic. And that's when uh, the, the traditional view is we move from a hunter-gatherer society to a more settled agricultural society. So one might imagine that that leads these farming groups to be less mobile because they're, they're tied to the land, they're having to having to grow crops and the like. Um, that, that's not quite right, um, uh, according to, uh, the, to, to some of the stuff in your book. That's right. So I'm, I, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated by this because this is a this is a an idea that um, we grow up with. This idea that we sort of come from this kind of wandering wildness in our past, and through a linear evolution, we slowly settle down and grew crops and became civilised. Um, you know, this idea of progressing from a wandering wildness to some sort of settled civilization is um, it just flows through our understanding of, of the prehistoric past. And, and yeah, and, um, anthropologists have been telling us for some time that actually not all hunter-gatherers move around very much. In fact, some hunter-gatherers move around in a very small way, um, very minimally, uh, some a lot less than you know, supposedly sedentary horticulturalists. And we sort of see this in the archaeology as well. We we kind of, we're getting growing evidence for rather large um, or larger houses in the early Mesolithic, houses that quite clearly were, would have been used um, uh, intergenerationally, you know, tying people to particular places. And at the same time, these the, the, the isotopes we, we, we talked about earlier, um, the isotope studies on, on Neolithic populations show that actually they're moving around quite a lot throughout their lifetime. And so I think we just need to move away from this idea of seeing Mobility is, as a, as a one-way street, if you forgive the, the pun, instantly mobility lends itself to huge numbers of puns and jokes and uh, various things. Um, but to, if, if, if this idea of, of, of a linear evolution... Um, uh, just, just um, it's it's a it's a fallacy that sort of exists throughout every all the writing on on prehistory really, um, and uh, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be that way. And of course, mobility isn't a one way street either. You can increase your mobility and you can decrease your mobility and communities do over various times and within your community of course you have some people who are more mobile and others who are less you always do in our society we do um, and so it's, it was the same in the past so I want to get away from this idea of, that, that we are sort of 
over the uh, millennia, over the generations, slowly becoming more settled, less mobile. And we're a, you know, supposedly a sedentary civilization now, and we move around more than we probably ever have done in the past. I mean, we're truly global um, individuals. So I'm just trying to move away from this idea. You know, yes, hunter-gatherers are mobile, but they're not all mobile, and they're not always more mobile than than farmers. Farmers move around an awful lot, especially small-scale horticultural culturalists. So how easy, then, is it to actually see evidence of travel and mobility in prehistory from a from an archaeological perspective so you mentioned things like axes and artifacts you can see them moving from one place to another you can see their provenance and you can see if they end up somewhere else and that's a fairly obvious way that that must have moved and there must have been some human agency to to move it there but but can you actually see physical evidence of of mobility uh but back in back in the prehistoric record well, again, this is something that's incredibly difficult to spot. So mobility is its a little bit like trying to see wind. You know, you can't really see it, but you can see the impact of it on the um, sort of environment around it. Uh, and, and and the same is true as mo- with mobility. So we can see, for example, um, things like um, uh, routeways in the landscape, you know, parallel linear ditches or sometimes ditch and banks. They often survive, particularly in upland areas, um, quite often fossilised within later prehistoric field systems. Um, we can see uh, we can see um, rows of, of barrows, round barrows, which are burial mounds, but um, they quite clearly once marked along marked routeways known as what we call barrow roads. And you see them in this country. Um, they've been studied quite a lot more in Europe. Um, but of course, we also have uh, wooden trackways that survive in, in waterlogged areas. Um, we, we get them, there's, there's uh, plenty in, in Ireland, we get them in Somerset uh, through the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, and you get them elsewhere in, in, in the country. I excavated a lovely one in, in East London, actually, uh, which is Bronze Age in date. And these trackways are sometimes really well made, sometimes they're nothing more than just brushwood laid down over a waterlogged area and they're literally just to allow people to cross um boggy boggy areas and of course then the waterlogged area or the peat grows up around it and preserves the timber so you can date them incredibly accurately uh you know we, we the, the most famous example is the sweet track in somerset which is uh, we, we can date through dendrochronology the, the the felling of the wood to um uh, 3806 or 7 bc i forget which um you know with so amazingly precise even the even the time of year it was um, excavated, uh, it was, the wood was felled. And these, these trackways were designed for people to cross the waterlogged area or sometimes to give people access out into the waterlogged area for hunting or perhaps for ritual purposes. I mean, that seems to be the case that the waterlogged areas are, are sort of ritual landscapes, not quite land and not quite water, but sort of liminal zone in between the two. And so you often get deposits of... of um, uh, axes or in later prehistory metalwork or you know sometimes uh, actual human bodies sacrificed bodies so you know the, the, these these trackways are, are wonderful ways of of sort of telling of, of kind of understanding movement in the past um 
so so I did my PhD on the Somerset levels, and, and one of my supervisors was uh, was one of the excavators of the Sweet Track. And if I remember rightly, um, that it was it's one of the rare examples where you can you can actually kind of see movement because someone had dropped a bag of hazelnuts or something along the along the course of the route, hadn't it? And that had been preserved in 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 situ there. So that's it's it's kind of. It's, that's a standout moment. It's a bit of a rare exemplar of of, of being able to actually see it. But but I suppose um, footprints as well might uh, might be uh, examples there. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's some wonderful examples of footprints in, for example, the Seven Estuary. Again, you mentioned um, uh, my colleague Professor Martin Bell. He's been excavating them over years, uh, and generally the ones he's been looking at are, are Mesolithic in date, and they're just you know they're just stunning. They're, I mean, those literally are a moment in time captured in a series of footprints and he has examples of you know people walking side by side um out into the estuarine mud um there's a, there's a wonderful example of two um small children uh, one slightly older the other dancing around the older one and you can really you know, really sort of uh, conjures this image of a small child um full of energy and jumping around and at some point it own, there's only one set of footprints, but those sets of footprints are slightly deeper. And quite clearly, the older child has picked up the younger one, perhaps slightly frustrated with it dancing around. So these, these little moments are captured in footprints. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're a wonderful, tangible example of mobility in the past. Yeah, they are they are amazing to, to just think of those of those survivals. So you talked a bit about the trackways there, and, and we can actually see evidence of of how things were constructed and how people uh, were moving around those wetland areas. And but uh, you know, it's it's a bit more esoteric the evidence, I suppose, on on uh, on dry land because it doesn't survive as well. But do, 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 are you able to sort of give us a sense about um, the sorts of uh, routes that people were travelling on in prehistory? And I suppose how much investment in maintenance or construction of of, of travelling routes uh, w- was made? Well, the routes that we see preserved within the field systems in the upland area, clearly they, they're part of a, a laid-out landscape and there's some degree of, of thought going on. Um, but it's, I mean, this is a really difficult subject to to, to to nail, I mean, to, to get stuck into, because A, they're very, very difficult to date, uh, only really now are we beginning to get the kinds of um, techniques and technologies required to, to date them properly. And even then, it's still very tentative and very difficult. Um, and, you know, people often talk about things like ridgeways forming um, big big routeways in prehistory. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the ridgeway that runs across from, from Norfolk down into Wiltshire uh, is, is, is a prime example of, you know, people describe it being the earliest road and things like this. Actually, you know, the evidence is pretty slim on the ground for that particular ridgeway to be um, a prehistoric routeway. I mean, we sort of have um, later prehistoric features running right across it and disregarding it. So, I mean, there's certainly good evidence for the Ridgeway being a routeway in in the Saxon and later periods, but in prehistory there isn't so much. I I mean, I wonder um, how much uh, rivers were really the the, the major highways of the day in prehistory. Uh, This is something that's sort of often forgotten about in in discussions of of mobility in the past. Uh, Rivers in many ways are much easier and you can sort of access um, sort of larger areas uh, through rivers. 
So just going back to the Ridgeway for a second, because that is, I, I do find that fascinating. I ran along uh, a bit of the Ridgeway back in, earlier in the summer, and it is um, in Wiltshire, and you're running past Barrows and Hill Forts and Wayland Smithy, this uh, uh, prehistoric monument there, which has a sort of a Saxon name nowadays. Um, and you do feel you do feel like you're sort of running in the past a bit because you're running past so much interesting history. Uh, but but I suppose the marketing is quite interesting there because it is advertised as this you know really ancient road. I can't remember exactly what uh, what the, what their what their branding is. But um, is that is that helpful uh, to, to us in our understanding of of ancient prehistoric movement to have uh, things marketed like that when perhaps they're not actually reflective of uh, of, of a, a reality back uh, back in in the neolithic period for instance well i, I mean I, you know i don't i don't i don't want to take away a, a, a beloved prehistoric routeway from everybody but i think if we're going to call it a prehistoric routeway we need to do some serious work on it and actually um determine whether it is or not and not just allow this to become uh, sort of hand down knowledge that it that it is a. I mean, I think they brand it as the earliest road, don't they? And that's that's the, um, uh, you know, and and I, and I think if we're going to say that, we actually need some scientific evidence to back it up, uh, which means we need to do some work, some proper archaeological work. And in in the case of the Ridgeway, when archaeological work has been done, it's been conclusively shown not to be. Um, you know, maybe it was used at times as a as a routeway, but it certainly was no. Um, uh, road, as it's described, certainly wasn't um, something that was used for any length of time. The other, the other uh, type of feature which um, people generally do love, and that uh, is, is the Holloways. Um, and I mean, I, I adore Holloways. They, you know, I find them deeply moving, romantic places to go. Um, you know, very evocative of the past. And Holloways are they're, they're formed literally by the the, the passage of feet and. Um, uh, horses' hooves and carts clattering down them, and they erode deep down, um, uh, helped often by um, flooding in the winter, where the where, where rainwater will wash down them and sort of essentially turn them into rivers, and that erodes even further. But these wonderful old hollowways, um, when we do look at them scientifically, and this is something that that again Martin Bell has really pioneered, actually we can trace the origins back. Um, frequently back into prehistory. Uh, you know, he, Martin has been able to date some back to um, certainly the Iron Age, if not the later Bronze Age in, in some instances. Uh, so those are those are the sorts of things, you know, forget the Ridgeway, walk along Holloways, and there you really are treading in the footsteps of ancestors. Great. Maybe we'll come back to just a few examples of places where you can uh, you can experience the, that's, uh, that's uh, past travel experience at the end of the podcast. Um, why uh, we've talked a little bit about this, but why would people have been travelling in the past? What would have been their motivations? I mean, you can think of some obvious reasons um, for you know purposes of agriculture and that sort of thing. Um, but today, obviously, travel. There's various reasons why you could travel, and and, uh, and many of them for leisure purposes. Um, I guess that's not one thing that we should think about for the past, or maybe we should. Well. I don't see why not. Um, you know, I think there's this this idea that again, it's a little bit like that division between the Mesolithic and the Neolithic. Um, that's, that's very um, pervasive, 
Uh, and that's that people didn't move around very much in the past. And what we're showing through things like isotope analysis is that people did move around, and they moved around a lot, not just in, in prehistory, but throughout the historic periods. And so, you know, throughout the historic periods, people of all uh, levels of life, all, all walks of life, um, uh, moved around. And for a variety of reasons, it could have been it could be just a sense of freedom, but it could be going from one place to another to visit relatives. It could be merchants on the move. It could be pilgrims on the move. Um, it could be messengers. You know, the military used these. And then, of course, you get um, big royal cavalcades going down, you know, clattering down roads um, with a sort of huge circus in tow of, of knights and courtiers and jesters and, you know, a great big show. Um, and so all, a whole variety of people um, used roads for, for a whole variety of reasons. You can imagine them uh, alive with activity and not least, of course, drovers and, uh, and, and people moving with their animals. So you've kind of got a, a bit of a split there, though, between uh, the local um, uh, movement for your sort of day-to-day -day activity, I suppose, and the longer distance movement for which might be for some of those other purposes that you've talked about. Um, do, I mean, you, you do look at that in, in your book a bit and, and try and uh, try and tease out the, the, those differences. Um, but I mean, is there? I suppose that leads to a question of whether you can identify actual long distance routes that go between certain places um, for, for given reasons. Um, is there any evidence for, for, for that sort of thing? For long distance movement? Yeah. Um, well, there, there certainly is. And it, I mean, it depends again. Mobility is such a wonderful subject. It's very, very diverse throughout time. So there are no universals and it, and it goes up and down. Um, but we certainly get long distance movement of people in prehistory. I mean, the Amesbury Arch, the, an early Bronze Age burial uh, not far from uh, Stonehenge, um, where we know that he was um, brought up, um, perhaps in the Swiss part of the, the Alps, but certainly from at a distance. And that's a long that's a long distance that, that this man has travelled, physically travelled himself. Um, so rather different than just looking at the artefacts where it may have passed from hand to hand, he actually walked and sailed that journey. Um, and then as you go through time, of course, you know, uh, as, as the, the globe opened up, um, you can see huge distance being moved uh, um, as, as merchants and pilgrims, you know, in the medieval period, I mean, people going to various pilgrimage centres in Europe and to the Holy Land um, uh, was was huge. I mean, there was a great big industry going on there. Um, back in, uh, going, going back in time to the Roman period, we know that there was a big tourist industry going on and people were moving around a lot for, the, for those reasons. So, you know, I think we can, what we need to do is enliven the past with all of these different mobilities and these different movements. People were moving around still to come on the history extra podcast and it, it goes back to this point that mobility is so fundamental to human life that if you control somebody's movements you control them and this has been the case for 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 for, for a long long time certainly since um the medieval period This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Okay, so then the next question, which I find absolutely fascinating, is is how did people know where they were going? Um, so in eras pre maps, pre GPS, um, how did you actually know where you were where you were trying to uh, trying to end up at? Um, I mean, even if you look um, into the medieval period, you you have things which look like map, like the the Goth map and things like that. But actually, when you when you interrogate them properly, if you try to use those sorts of things to actually get from A to B. You, it wouldn't work terribly well. They're not uh, they're not terribly accurate devices. So so how do how do people know where they're going? Well, of course we um, we look we tend to look at the world a bit like um, a bird would look at it from above, and we've got used to seeing that. You know, we have satellite imagery which shows us what what it looks like from above. And of course, as, as you rightly say, people didn't have that view in the past, and so their understanding of the world around them, their landscape, came from. Um, from from their knowledge of it on the ground, literally on the ground. Um, and in terms of how do they know their way around? Um, well, if you if you're brought up, if you live in an area, uh, and you you move around in that area, you walk in that area, you know it really really well. And it's um, it's a sort of knowledge that you could describe as as an ambulatory knowledge. It's a knowledge, a knowledge that can only be gained from moving in that particular landscape. And so these people, I mean, they're essentially um, seeing the world as a wayfarer or a wayfinder. They 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 know their way around because they just. Uh, they just live within that landscape. They know it intimately. But again, they don't know it from above. They know it on the ground. So they'll know the route ways and um, they will recognise at what point they need to make which turning. Uh, so it's not a set of instructions in their head. It's a kind of, it's what you might describe as 
um, knowing as you uh, you know as you go, um, you know it's sort of something that develops out of your uh, moving on foot, and so the, and that's very much a, a wayfarer's way of seeing the world. And so if you're in a foreign area, well, um, you might employ a wayfarer or wayfinder to help you through the way. Um, uh, you, you or you may f- follow a, a, a well marked out routeway, or if it's not well marked out, there may well be um, marks on trees, for example, symbols on trees, or patches of bark that have been cut away, or saplings bent in a particular way to point you in particular directions. That's known as trailblazing. So that's another way of, of determining where to go. Um, but so there are a variety of ways, but um, it's it's it, you know it's it if you're moving in a in a um an unfamiliar area the risk of getting lost is was was serious so um the, the trailblazing examples you gave there you're not just making them apart because those there are sort of ethnographic parallels for people um employing those sorts of things um i think in uh, sort of first nation territories in uh, in north america for instance those there's clear examples of people um uh, using those sorts of techniques Yes, absolutely. The, the, you know, it's a it's a well known technique. Uh, the other thing, of course, is as you as people move along a trail, um, in, in you know, a number of people move along a particular line, um, they are impacting their landscape automatically. They're 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 treading vegetation underfoot and pushing it back. And of course, as you're you're walking along and you may eat some fruit and throw it to one side, you will start to get particular fruit trees growing on the side. So you, you start developing very particular ecosystems along routeways. And um, so, you know, all of these things provide cues in the landscape. Or, for example, on particular um, pilgrimage routes, uh, it may be marked out with, with um, uh, I think it's in Sussex, they use yew trees at every particular, um, at a particular distance. So, you know, it helps you find your way. So there, there are a variety of ways of knowing where you where where you're meant to be walking, where the route goes, um, but uh, I mean, to us in our modern minds, where we're so used to to maps and uh, and particularly nowadays digital maps on our phone, it's so easy. You know, it's very difficult to get lost, really, uh, which is a great shame. I, I'm a big fan of getting lost. Um, and, and yeah, and, and, and knowledge lost as well, I, I guess, for, for for our inability to be able to spot those signs um, anymore. I was I was walking along a path this morning, actually, having having read your book, thinking it's curious there are quite so many blackberries along this path, and maybe that's uh, maybe that's uh, an example of uh, of some of that sort of knowledge. Right. Um, let, let's um, let's just pause for a moment and sort of move. I mean, we've we've already dabbled into into the Middle Ages a bit, but um, uh, the, the the sort of the boundary between prehistory and and uh, and and uh, historic times is. is the Roman period for a lot of uh, for a lot of places, and particularly here in Britain, uh, the Romans come and they're famous for putting in the roads and building the road network, and you know that's we, that's one of the big things we associate them with. Um, how important, uh, in terms of our, uh, uh, our knowledge of travel and and the way people were moving around in the countryside, were the Romans and 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 the network they brought in? And I suppose just is that is that true that the Romans did bring in roads and did they? And I suppose the one big question is, did they make the roads straight or not? <laughs> Well, I mean, did did they bring in roads? I mean, I'm I'm always a bit reticent talking about Roman roads because whenever you're talking, whenever you talk about roads, you have a lot of experts on Roman roads who really fight quite vigorously for their little patch for the for the Roman roads, and it's very difficult to talk about Roman roads as part of 
sort of a broader discussion of, of roads more generally and mobility. But anyway, I should, I, I, that hasn't stopped me in my book anyway. But um, in terms of did they bring roads with them? Well, I mean, of course they did. Um, they, they, they built fantastic roads. I mean, splendid roads. I've excavated um, Roman roads uh, in 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 the past, I excavated a fantastic one in Southwark in London, beautifully well-made, and they were incredibly well-engineered, well-made roads that stand the test of time. A number of them are still in use today, um, which shows how, obviously, they've, they've been re-tarmacked and remade, but it just shows how, how crucial those Roman road links were. But did they bring Roman roads? Well, you know, we now have growing evidence for Iron Age roads. Um, there was a wonderful site in uh, Sharpstone near Roxeter where they excavated a road which for all the world looked like it should be a Roman engineered road, but the dating showed that it's actually, it was Iron Age. Um, we have uh, Iron Age uh, street grid pattern at, uh, at Silchester, for example. Um, and there are other Iron Age roads. And, and it just makes me wonder how many of, how many of the Roman roads are actually um, overlaying on top of earlier roads. I su- suspect a lot of them, an awful lot of them. Um, so yes, Roman roads are quantitatively different. There's absolutely no getting away from the fact that the, the, the Roman road was really something special. Um, but I do wonder whether actually it was more likely to be overlaid onto routes that already existed. Um, uh, and um, the, the other thing to remember, of course, is that the Roman road network didn't just suddenly appear overnight. They didn't invade and suddenly overnight create this Roman road system. What we look at, what we're looking at when we look at the Roman road network, is um, a few hundred years worth of development and change. You know, so it didn't appear over time. It, when the when the Romans first arrived, no doubt they used existing routeways and then started developing them from there. And were they straight? Well, you know, some of the best known examples clearly are very, very straight. I mean, Romans were fantastic surveyors and fantastic engineers. But um, there were loads of Roman roads that aren't straight. And that's because they weren't looking at the world with a bird's eye view. They weren't using Google Maps on their phone to plonk it on. They were building it on the ground, so to speak. So it develops on the ground and it goes round corners. And, you know, they're, they're very sensible when it comes to, ro- to river crossings. They do it so it crosses the river the minimum number of times and stuff. But, they, you know, it's not they're not all dead straight. Um, and the other thing, of course, is road, routeways and roads, when or routeways and pathways, um, after a, a, a length of time, you know, once they're there, they they tend to remain. And after a length of time, they start to straighten out. I mean, you know, if it's been there a while, you tend to cut off the corners and straighten these things out. So Roman roads that are using a, a pre-existing series of routeways actually probably are using quite straight roads anyway. So, you know, I love Roman roads. I'm not, uh, you know, I love people who study Roman roads. But I think we overplay this idea that they, you know, they they came, you know, the the whole Monty Python sketch, you know, what did they ever do for us bringing roads and all the rest of it? You know, well, actually, the Roman road system was something that developed over time um, and is very special and is used for for centuries, millennia later. But 
Um, you know, I do question whether actually they were dead straight and just sort of imposed themselves on the landscape. No, no road ever imposes itself on a landscape. Roads develop from the landscape. And you can see this in the Roman roads where they, they use the geology around them and the, the engineering style of the roads changes depending on the landscape around it. So they, they develop up, they evolve from the earth. So you've, uh, you've slightly blown my next question out of the water, but I'll ask anyway because um, I was I was going to say what does the what would the imposition of a network and you've just said there wasn't uh, of a network like that have done for the psych- psychology of people moving around um, because suddenly there were you know these these better uh, more constructed more better constructed roads leading to to all sorts of interesting places which would presumably have meant uh, the experience of travelling was quite different um, but maybe maybe it's not because there was already Iron Age antecedents to it. Well, I mean, I still, I, I mean, all, having said what I've just said, I still think that it, that they are quantitatively different, and that the experience of moving would have been different. Um, walking along a Roman road, I mean, they are beautifully compact and flat. Um, you know, I've excavated them, and they they're, they're wonderful things. And where you get potholes, they get filled in. I mean, in many ways, they're better than the roads we have now. Um, so, in that sense, I think moving along them would have been um, different. Whether whether um, whether people could have freely moved across uh, along them is a different question, uh, and you know whether the, I, I think many of these roads were constructed for military use, and they may well be have 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 been sort of dominated by uh, soldiers moving up and down them, and actually, you know, ironically, even though they had a better uh, um, uh, net, road network, mobility may have become more difficult after the Roman um, invasion and arrival. That's an interesting. That's an interesting point. Uh, the sort of the uh, legality and authority required to travel. Uh, maybe we'll we'll pop back into that in, in just a minute. But I just want to pick up on a couple of sections in uh, in your book uh, relating to medieval travel that I found particularly interesting. So um, so we're leaping forward again here a, a few centuries from 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 the Romans. Um, but uh, pilgrimage. You've mentioned pilgrimages earlier, um, and and you talk quite a lot about that um, in your book about how important the, the concept of pilgrimage was and how it kind of uh, not only made people travel, but the, the very fact that lots of people were traveling kind of shaped the landscape of mobility itself. So can you give us a sort of a, a, just a little synopsis of what you mean by that? Yes, I mean, I think we probably forget nowadays just how important pilgrimage was, particularly in the in the medieval period in Britain. Um, you would have had people going, you know, entire households going out on pilgrimages at particular times of the year, um, you know, particular holy days. And it would have been a rather a rather fun time. I mean, there was almost sort of a festival um uh, a festival feeling around some of these uh, pilgrimage centres during holy days, and you would have gone with your your household and perhaps some neighbours, and you would have made a, a nice day of it, or maybe a, a long, you know, longer than that, um, and 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 it would have all been you know rather rather fun. Um, of course, there's a, there's a flip side of that, which is wherever you have uh, mobility as freedom, uh, there's mobility as uh, restriction, and uh, so people um, were often forced to go on pilgrimages as as penance uh, for committing some crime, you know, adultery or whatever it might be. Uh, um, so you know, it wasn't always fun for everyone, and others may have gone um, sort of uh, with. Um, 
you know, with with their sackcloth on uh, and uh, or barefoot or or whatever. Um, so the, people had different experiences of pilgrimage. It's sometimes fun and gay and festival and, uh, uh, and full of festi- festivities, and other times it would have been more difficult. Um, but whatever th- these these pilgrimage routes to major centres, like uh, for example Canterbury. Um, uh, everyone along that route would benefit. I mean, you need um, people, you need inns to provide uh, uh, accommodation overnight and to provide uh, food. Um, you, you know, you would have had, um, uh, you know, the ferrymen, or the Thames ferrymen did particularly well out of uh, people going on pilgrimage down to, to Canterbury. Um, so, you know, people, there's, there's, there was money to be made out of this. And, it, and of course, whenever there's any sort of um, mobility, it impacts the environment around it. So pilgrimage is exactly the same. You know, a whole um, industry, if you like, builds up along these pilgrimage routes out to service people going on pilgrimage. It sort of actually changes the landscape and, and has a significant impact on on the way things happen, and that leads us on to uh, to another sort of area of travel or a reason for travel, which was to do with animals and agriculture. Uh, and you have some very interesting uh, content um, in uh, in your manuscript about uh, the importance of droving and drovers, and also uh, transhumans. So um, you probably need to explain what transhumance is, and maybe you need to explain what droving is as well. Um, just just gives a sense about uh, how important uh, animals were in the transport of animals uh, in in the medieval period. Absolutely, I, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated by this subject. I I, um, I I love the idea that people were moving with their animals um, to such an extent through the medieval period. Really, it's the post-medieval period where it explodes, uh, and you get people droving and, and, and as you say, transhumans. Uh, the difference between the two, droving, is when you take your animal to market and so people would drove their, their animals across sometimes huge distances you know from Wales into London for example or from the Scottish Highlands all the way down into uh, England to sell them in markets uh, so for the animal droving is a one-way street you know they they go one way they don't come back again um transhumance is rather different that's taking your animal up into upland areas for the summer and back down uh, uh, into the valleys for the winter or if you're in a in a wetland area you know, take them to the wetland over the summer and then dryland area in the winter and so on. Uh, so, but, but moving animals around was a huge part of mobility through the whole of the historic period, probably through much of later prehistory as well, um, but really explodes in, in the post-medieval period. And you see, um, you know, very much like pilgrimage, uh, you know, these routeways uh, really fundamentally change our landscape and they impact on the entire environment around it. Once again, drovers need um, accommodation. You know, there's, there's you often get inns. Well, you do get inns that appear along drove droveways or driftways or greenways, they're sometimes called, um, you know, the drover's arms or wh- whatever they might be, a place for you to, to, to put your, um, your animals overnight, um, whether they're cows or sheep or geese or, or, or sometimes even pigs, um, you know, so a field for them to graze uh, and somewhere for you to sleep. And people like blacksmiths would have done really well out of drovers uh, when, whenever there was a, a, a big market on, and and, dro- and and smithies would set themselves up to service people as they're moving along these these droveways. And and again, you know, going to market, sort of a bit like going to a to going on a pilgrimage on a holy day. Um, market days kind of have these this air of festivity about them. All these people being brought together from 
disparate parts of the country um, meeting up and and intermingling and chatting and sharing gossip and sharing knowledge. You know, these markets were you know great big melting pots and uh, of, of of life of humanity, um, all driven by the mobility of, of an animal. So I'm just I'm just thinking. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier about the sort of the possibility in Roman roads that access to those Roman roads might have been restricted because uh, f- because they were primarily military transport routes. Perhaps um, how far is it possible for you as an archaeologist to get a sense of the um, uh, the, the limits that might have been imposed on people's ability to travel in the past, whether through legal restrictions or or social or um, economic restrictions? I suppose can you can you see that at all? Well, it's it's very, very difficult to see this in the archaeological record. And really, this is where we start to rely on, on the historic record to understand the kinds of restrictions involved with mobility. And it, it goes back to this point that mobility is so fundamental to human life that if you control somebody's movements, you control them. And this has been the case for for, for 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 a long, long time. Certainly since um, the medieval period. I mean, we have the uh, the statute of Winchester, twelve eighty five, which means which restricts people moving around at night time. Uh, so you know you might be caught by the night watch. And what what are you doing up at this time? Because if you're not sleeping, then that means that you're probably sleeping during the day, and and therefore very limited economic value to people. Um, uh, you know, so so this so restriction is is a big a big part of of um, restricting mobility is a big part of controlling the people, um, and you see this you see this through time. I mean, it's, it, it it kind of gets worse, and actually, it's it's even quite it's not great now to be honest. You know, we are, we are more restricted now than I think we have been um, ever before in the past. Um, but you know, so on the one hand, we're, uh, people were, were restricted on the times of the day that they could move around. Um, but at the same time, various um, uh, Tudor poor laws and uh, proclamations against vagabonds and uh, so on meant that, that people actually were forced into, you know, the very lowest tier of society was forced into this constant moving around. Uh, so, you know, you get this sense that um, uh, w- if you've got money, you're, you're okay. You you're, you have a lot more freedom, um, but if you if you don't, you you have a lot less freedom to move around. And and actually, you, there's, so there's, a, there's there's an economic and social division, but I think there's also a gender division as well. In that, if you're a young man and you're forced to move from town to town, um, then you could probably get by. And actually, there's probably a little bit of a, a you know a libertine freedom about that. Um, you know, going from alehouse to alehouse and enjoying the pleasures. As a woman, as a young woman, that's a lot more difficult to do. And, um, you know, often uh, women, um, uh, women, um, unmarried women that moved around a lot in the medieval period were considered uh, lewd or associated with um, illegitimate children and that sort of thing. So the Mobility is this this wonderfully variable thing that is freedom for some people, restriction for for other people, um, and you get this right the way through. It goes through to um, you know the first enclosures where large tracts of the landscape are um, enclosed, and all of a sudden previous routeways have um, either gone completely or been rerouted into different areas, or the later enclosures, parliamentary enclosures of the 18th century, um, you know, and, and, and 
uh, so restriction is something that's restricting people's movements has gone on and on and on, and we still have problems today. Um, but you know, where, where you get restriction, you always get resistance. And so, you know, this the, the flip side of the mobility coin to restriction is resistance, resistance um, to to these restrictions. Uh, so, you know, in in the um, uh, during the parliamentary enclosures, you had, or d- during the earlier enclosures, you had um, uh, people uh, the, the, known as levelers that would go out and literally uh, level the hedges and the various um, boundaries that had been set up on across routeways. And incidentally, um, th- these people were known as as the mob, um, mobile vulgus. They were called by the landowners. You know, the the the, the mob is literally um, a group of people identified by their type of mobility. Uh, their their movements define what they are, and they resisted against it. And then you can see this in, for example, the the, the mass trespass at Kinder Scout uh, in the 1930s. Um, uh, you know, we, we 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 can we can resist, or even um, Gandhi uh, Gandhi's wonderful um, salt walk uh, to to resist the um, uh, colonial power, the British uh, salt tax. So you know, m- m- movement mo- uh, movement can be freedom, but it can be oppression, um, but it can also be a form of resistance. And if you've ever gone on a protest, you know, these sort of long wandering uh, forms of movement, a very particular type of movement in a, in a protest march. Um, or of course, uh, immobility is a form of protest. You know, think about the Occupy movement, just sitting down, refusing to budge. Um, it's another form of protest. So mobility is all of these things. And whilst uh, uh, elite powers have always tried to um, control people's movements, people have always fought back with a different form of movement. Some, there's some fascinating social historical angles that underpin all this, all, all this, uh, uh, all this uh, topic, isn't there? Um, and I'm reminded actually that. Uh, uh, Trespassing is is a is a live topic now, isn't it? Because there's been a book um, just uh, just published by a chap called Nick Hayes, I think, called Trespass, which uh, which is sort of exploring the restrictions that uh, that still exist on people moving around Britain today. Which so it's uh, people are, are still uh, still coming to terms with that and trying to uh, trying to well, he he particularly is trying to fight against it, I guess. Um, right, just just moving to an end with some sort of. Uh, practical uh tips for people um if we can so um when when we're wandering around uh in the british countryside or elsewhere i don't know how far um such things would apply elsewhere we've got a lot of listeners in the states so i don't know whether there's uh, any 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 tips there but can you give us any 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 hints of, to how we can judge the likely age or or original intention of a track or path or road that that, that we're wandering along it's, it's it's actually surprisingly difficult to find the date of a particular path. I mean, a Roman road is is built in a very particular way, um, so a little more easy to identify, perhaps. But some of these, you know, these drift ways, green ways that you see, some of the smaller ways, very difficult to determine what their date is. Um, I think the simplest thing to to understand. Um, to try to identify Roman roads, I think the easiest thing is to look at maps because they, they're they pretty well mapped, they're very well studied. And um, I think even the OS maps for Britain have um, Roman roads uh, marked on them. 
For these earlier ones, it's almost impossible to to just walk along them and determine their date. Actually, what they need is is, is serious scientific work to understand them. But you can, I mean, you know, um, Holloway's again. I mean, they're just wonderful. You don't have to go anywhere in particular. I mean, I, I'm up here in in North Yorkshire, and we have fantastic Holloways. I've got some wonderful ones in in the village just near me, um, and they are just so wonderful and evocative. And when life starts to get on top of you, actually, just walking down a a holloway and feeling the time depth um actually uh, makes me feel an awful lot better so i would advise those i mean I, 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 and, and as i said before where we've dated where they have been dated and and this work really is the pioneering work of of martin bell and we can show that they have some serious heritage you know going back in some cases right back to prehistory but it's, it's really difficult to determine um uh, the, the date of a path um just by walking it. I mean, uh, looking at where they come from and go to is another way, you know, quite again up here in North Yorkshire, we have a lot of big abbeys. And um, if they're coming from an abbey or going to an abbey, then, um, uh, oh, you know, but it seems sensible to assume that they're probably medieval in date. Um, and the place name as well, I mean, that may give you an inkling as to what they are, um, uh, you know, and, and, and therefore you can sort of partly date them from that but actually getting to the origin the original date of them that's the really difficult thing because they they get you know root ways once it's there it tends to remain there for a long long time and um it gets sort of absorbed into different networks and used for different things and renamed and slightly altered and slightly engineered here and there and um so yeah but you know root ways are just wonderful things to walk down anyway so you you mentioned sort of the, the pleasure of the time depth experience of going down one of these holloways and uh, and 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 how that feels. Are there any are there any sort of concrete examples of anywhere that you would go where you can get a really good sense of uh, of, of of walking along an ancient uh, an ancient path or route? Well, my, uh, again, Martin Bell has been working at um, on the South Downs a lot, where a lot of the holloways on the South Downs, Saddlescombe, for example, he's dated to potentially the Iron Age. Uh, he's also looked at another one, Liminge in Kent, um, which uh, he's quite conclusively shown is is certainly later prehistoric in date, in origin. Um, but this is very pioneering work. And so, you know, we, we we don't have dates on a lot of these Holloways. Some of them, because of the nature of them, you know, they're essentially negative features, are um it's very, they are very, very difficult to date. So this is this is part of the point of my book is I want to energize this understanding of the past. I want people to to um uh, read it and embrace it and engage in it, but actually also do some research on on paths and let's start dating them because they are datable. You just have to work really hard. Um, uh, if, in terms of concrete examples, come up to North Yorkshire. Come up to North Yorkshire and look at some of the amazing paths on the on the North York Moors, for example. I'm, I spend my weekends. I'm a, I'm a man obsessed. My, my family, um, thankfully, uh, happily come along, but I think they've largely given up on me. Um, you know, particularly the trods. Um, you know, trods are wonderful things. They, they run across the North York Moors. You get them elsewhere. They, they, you get some in Cumbria and and the Yorkshire Dales. And these are these are made of um, sort of large flags stones and they're laid out and they're likely to be medieval in date because some of them originate or, or go to some of the big abbeys um but i just love the name trod i mean you know if there's ever a word that defines exactly what it is is a trod um you know you tread on a trod much as you ride on a road 
Absolutely, it's a very evocative word. It sounds quite Yorkshire as well, doesn't it? Trod. You can uh, you can see how that would work in there uh, it, it, with the accent there. Is there anything um, that I haven't asked you um, that maybe you you might want to um, just uh, bring bring to the attention of our listeners? Any areas that uh, you think are particularly interesting that we haven't gone over? No, I mean I think probably one of the last things that I would say that that actually um, I've, I find one of the really fascinating things about mobility is is how it is so completely cultural. Um, that if you if you're born and brought up in a particular country, you walk in a particular way. Um, so mobility is a is a is a, an entirely cultural um, thing. You don't you know there's no there's no human way of walking you develop a walk you walk like your parents walk you know you, you copy your parents or you copy your the you know the, the cool kids at school like uh, john travolta at the beginning of uh, saturday night fever you know he's he, he's got the coolest walk in the world walking down the Bee Gees uh, behind you know singing you can tell by the way i use my walk i'm a lady i'm a woman's man no time to talk you know you can tell by the way he uses his walk he is he's a cool guy um he walks in a cool way you know so so walking is a very culturally specific thing, and I find that utterly fascinating. That's the side that we really struggle to get from archaeology. That was Dr Jim Leary. Hopefully he'll find a publisher for his book Rome sometime soon so that you can read more about this subject. In the meantime, if you want to find out more about medieval pilgrimage, just go to historyextra.com and search for pilgrimage and you should find some great material to read. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for another lecture from our 2019 History Weekends. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.